It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to start off today by filling you guys in that we should finally have our open records request in our hands by early next week. In an email from Smith County, they have said that they are shipping out our open records request either today, which is Friday, or at the very latest, Monday. So as long as they stick to their word, by Wednesday of next week, we should have all of the documents, all of the reports, and all of the recorded interviews that should give us clear answers to a lot of the questions that we have about this case. And now moving on to the content of today's episode, after the discovery last week that the fact that Elnora's throat was slit and that was her cause of death was clearly public information, that has prompted me to dig even deeper into Leonard Mosley and Angela Walker's possible involvement into Elnora Griffin's murder. Today's episode will be a little bit shorter than normal. As we're waiting for that open records request to come in, I don't want to jump the gun on anything until we have all of the documents to answer all of our questions. However, as I mentioned in the Friday follow-up episode, I did have returned to me an open records request from the Smith County Sheriff's Department this week that is going to make your skin crawl. The first thing that I want to mention this week is that I've had a lot of questions about tracking down Bob Norman, Ed's old boss, and I've been trying to do that for the last couple of weeks, even reaching out to some locals. And I wanted to let you all know that what I finally figured out, that Bob Norman passed away in 2001 at the age of 65 years old. So unfortunately, we won't be able to rely on Bob's own word to let us know what exactly the story was with those knives. All we're going to have is the documentation to go off of, which means that all we know is that when the knife was found, the police report said that it was found on the side of the road, and when Dale Huckel prepared his supplemental report months later, he changed the story to say that it was found on the farm. So now let's move on to Leonard Mosley and Angela Walker. The first item up for discussion today was Leonard Mosley's presence on the crime scene the night Elnora's body was found. According to Leonard's testimony at trial, on the night Elnora's body was found, that Friday night, he arrived home from work at about 12.30, got into bed with Angela Walker, went to sleep, and then a little while after he went to sleep, his brother Michael stopped by the house. 
He says that Michael woke him up and told him that he was on his way home from church in Tyler and had driven past Elnora's house and stopped by to see what all the commotion was. He then went to Leonard's house and woke him up, and at that point Leonard left and went to the crime scene. Angela Walker's testimony at trial confirmed the same story, that Leonard was home, he was sleeping, Michael stopped by, and Leonard left and went to the crime scene. What I want to do is break down first the behavior of Leonard Mosley getting up out of bed with his girlfriend slash baby's mother and leaving to go to his girlfriend's house. To begin with, this seems a little bit odd to me. Through my conversations with Angela, she was no fan of Elnora. Angela referred to Elnora to me as Leonard's side chick. So first of all, it just seems a little odd to me that Angela would allow Leonard to get up and leave and go to Elnora's trailer. Now, that's not evidence of anything. It's just something that just struck me as odd. Or that Leonard, who was trying to maintain these two relationships behind each of the women's backs, would take the risk of getting up and going to Elnora's trailer. But that's just an aside, my own conjecture on that. It could be a perfectly normal thing in their relationship. But another thing that I want to point out when we're speaking of behavior is the fact that it is not uncommon at all for an offender to insert themselves into an investigation and namely show up on the scene when the crime scene's being investigated. So we're either dealing with a concerned friend who wants to see what's happening, or the actual actor of the crime who wants to visit the scene to see how the investigation is going. But moving beyond that, looking at the actual validity and credibility of this story, we have a few issues here. The fact that Leonard Mosley was on the crime scene that night is undisputed. Leonard says he was there, Angela says that he went there, Kubia Jackson told me that he was there, and Johnny Pryor told me that he was there that night. The fact that he was on the crime scene is not in question, but the fact that his brother was on the crime scene is absolutely in question. First of all, we have the story that Leonard's brother Michael noticed all the police cars on the crime scene when he was driving home from church. Remember, this is after midnight on a Friday night. I've done as much research as I could to look into different churches and see if there was any revivals or anything going on. But even with that, it just strikes me as odd that he would be driving all the way back from Tyler on a Friday night after midnight coming home from church. I also find it convenient that the person that notified Leonard was his brother. But moving beyond that, I have asked personally Kubia Jackson and Johnny Pryor if Leonard's brother Michael was on the crime scene that night. Both of them told me that they never saw Michael on the crime scene. Johnny went as far as to say, no, he was not there. Now, is it possible that he showed up and maybe talked to a police officer and Kubi and Johnny never saw him? We have to leave that open that that is a possibility, but I find it highly unlikely. I don't believe that the police officers would have released any information about what was happening to just a stranger passing by the scene, and the only two people that were left on the crime scene after 11 o'clock at night were Kubia and Johnny. Remember, at about 11 o'clock, Ed and his mom Margie left and went to the police station for Ed's interview. And it seems quite implausible to me that a guy, Michael, driving by the scene who knows Elnora and Johnny well enough to stop by concerned when he sees lights there, that if he stopped by and was told by someone, say the police, that Elnora had been killed, that he wouldn't then walk right next door and talk to Johnny and see if she was okay or if she needed anything, but rather get in his car and leave right away and drive to his brother's house and tell him. The story just doesn't add up to me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the question is, first of all, why does it matter if the story about Michael stopping by to tell Leonard that Elnora had been killed even matter? And the answer relates back to the point I made a few moments ago. Like I said, it's not uncommon for an offender or an actor to return to the crime scene during the investigation. And there's a number of reasons for that, behaviorally speaking. Number one, people who've committed crimes tend to insert themselves into the investigation, hoping to derail the investigation and move it in a direction away from themselves. They want to be there while the police are asking questions so they can give any pre-planned excuses or alibis and explain things away. They also want to gather information, and they want to know what the police are investigating. They want to know what information they need to come up with, maybe as far as alibis and things of that nature. And thirdly, especially someone who has not committed a crime like this before, will be very nervous, and they'll be thinking about things like, what would the police expect the killer to do? And many times a person will believe the police would think the killer would never come to the crime scene, So therefore, they're going to do the opposite of what they think the police are expecting. And therefore, they show up on the crime scene as the concerned friend that wants to check in on everyone. Now again, I'll point out that doesn't mean that's what's happening here, but it's definitely something to think about. And so when we consider that scenario, the story about Michael telling Leonard that Elnora was dead really comes into play. If you don't remember, Leonard Mosley in his police statement said that the night the body was found, that Friday night, that he gave his friend Bobby a ride home in Tyler. Now, the closest route from Tyler Pipe to Leonard's house would not go past Elnora's house. However, if he had went into the city of Tyler to drop somebody off, he would then drive right past Elnora's house to get home. Remember, Leonard got off work that night at 11 o'clock at night which means that when he drove to work, if his story is true about dropping Bobby O'Neill off after work, he would have driven right past Elnora's house and seen all of the emergency vehicles and lights all over her house when he was on his way home at 11.30 or 12 o'clock at night. I find it extremely unlikely that when he drove by her house, he wouldn't have noticed all those emergency vehicles. I mean, after all, he says that his brother noticed, and that wasn't even his brother's girlfriend. So assuming that his story about dropping Bobby O'Neill off in Tyler that night and then driving home is true, that would mean that he drove right past the crime scene and for some reason went all the way home, stayed home for a half hour to an hour, and then turned around and returned to the crime scene. Whether or not his brother had stopped and told him what was going on, he still would have already driven past. Personally, I think the entire story about his brother stopping by is a complete fabrication. Now, while you're contemplating all of that, and I'm anxious to hear in the follow-up episode this week some of your opinions about what I've just said, but while you're rolling that over in your mind, 
I want to get back to the idea that Leonard Mosley didn't know the cause of death and that he did know that she had been choked. I went back through all the records that we have regarding Leonard Mosley's involvement in the case. We've already determined that it is completely implausible that Leonard didn't know her throat was slit. Right from the very beginning, Johnny found Elnora's body, and she said she looked, she saw her laying nude on the floor, and there was blood everywhere. Leonard was on the crime scene that night and spoke with Johnny. So that part was clear. A few listeners have emailed in and pointed out that the feces on Ed's shoe was made a big deal of at trial because there was feces on the scene, which was because she was choked. So possibly that's how Leonard knew she was choked. But here's the issue with that. So we know Leonard talked to Johnny the night the body was found. Johnny told him there was blood everywhere. We know that the night the body was found, that Ed was interviewed by Dale Huckel, who straight up told him that Elnora's throat had been slashed, and nothing was mentioned about her being choked. And Leonard Mosley was questioned by the police the very next day. Now, we don't have the transcripts of the audio from that interview yet. We should have it next week. But assuming they were relaying the same information to him that they were relaying to Ed the night before, I know for a fact that they did not tell Leonard that Elnora was choked. And the reason I know that is because the police didn't think that she was choked at that point. If you read the transcripts of Ed's interview, you'll see that the police theory of the case that night, all the way up until after they received the autopsy results, was that the reason that there was feces all over the scene was because they believed that Elnora was anally raped. They were threatening Ed with capital murder charges because apparently a murder along with a rape is a death penalty offense. Nothing was said about her being choked at all. And you can see in Monica Bush's testimony that that was clearly their theory. She was really irritated with the phone call that she got that night from Deputy Steve Cheney because Cheney was asking her all about her sexual relationship with Ed, wanting to know if they ever did anything like having anal sex. Because again, they thought that Elnora was anally raped. They did not think the feces was because she was attempted to be strangled. And to further drive the point home, I want to relay to you guys a story from this July. A few months ago, when I was in Tyler, I went and visited Johnny Pryor. We sat in her living room and we talked for about an hour, and then she offered to take me over to the trailer, to the actual crime scene. Her brother Leon lives in the trailer now. We went over there, she knocked on the door, and asked Leon if it would be okay if I came in and looked at the inside of the trailer. He agreed, we chatted for a few minutes, and then Johnny started asking me about the details of the murder. I was surprised to find out that she really had no idea what had happened, so we actually walked through the crime scene. We started back in the bedroom, and I told her it looks like the struggle started here. And Johnny was shocked. She had no idea. She said that she just always thought that Elnora's throat was slit in the living room. Now, mind you, Johnny was closer to this case than anyone else. The victim was her cousin, friend, renter, and neighbor. She owned the property where the crime occurred. She arguably knew more about the case than anyone else that we've talked to, and she didn't know that the struggle began in the bedroom. I told her that the forensics looked like Elnora was initially choked in the bedroom, but that she escaped the killer's grasp there. And again, Johnny was shocked. She told me that she had no idea that happened, she didn't know Elnora was choked, and I told her that they knew that because of the petechia in her eyes and the fact that there was feces all over the place. She was also surprised about the feces. She told me that she had seen in the newspaper something about, as she put it, doo-doo on Ed's shoes, 
but she never understood why that mattered or how it related to the case. We then walked through the bedroom to the front door, and I explained to her that it looks like Elnora might have tried to get out the door, pulled the curtain down, there was another struggle there where the lamp was knocked off of the end table, and then we walked through to where Elnora's body was found, and I explained to her that it looks like right here, from behind, her throat was slit. And then she relayed, yes, that's where I found her. She was laying right there, and she physically showed me on the floor where Elnora's body was laying. She described to me in detail, seeing the blood all over the place. So given that Johnny was so close to this case and so connected to the investigation, and the fact that the only place that Leonard Mosley had to get information from was from the news and from Johnny herself, my question is, if Johnny didn't know Elnora was choked, then how the hell did Leonard know? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As we're moving forward with this investigation, I want to explain to you why I am all of a sudden focusing so much on Leonard and Angela. There are a couple of key details that have the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. As we've already discussed, Leonard Mosley knew that Elnora was choked, and that's information that he should not have had. And then when we couple that with the fact that Angela Walker knew that there were fingernail scratches on Elnora's body, that's also information that she shouldn't have had. I believe 100% that those marks on Elnora's back are fingernail scratches, and that fact was never disclosed to anyone ever, not even at trial. Leonard Mosley and Angela Walker have intimate knowledge of details of this crime scene that they should not have. And it's because of this information, along with everything else that we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks, that I filed an open records request with the Smith County Sheriff's Department. The purpose for my request was to find out if the story Angela told me about calling the police on the night of July 21st, 1993, actually happened. I sent the request in and asked for all police responses and reports to Leonard Mosley's address all the way from 93 to today's date. The first thing that I discovered was there was no report on July 21st, 1993. There were no police responses out there at all in 93 from what we were able to find from the Smith County Sheriff's Department. But to put a pin in that for a minute... The records guy from Smith County did tell me that he's going to go back and check through all the hard files because it's possible it wasn't entered into the computer system. But as of right now, as far as we know, that story never happened. But that's not the part that sends shivers down my spine. In this request came back a list of several police responses to Leonard's address, many of which were for assaults and domestic violence. And I want to read to you this report from December 4th, 2001. The report was made by Joanne Mosley, Leonard Mosley's ex-wife, and based on my research, appears to be the mother of his children that he had before Angela Walker. I'm going to read to you verbatim the case narrative. Complainant is seeking a protective order through the crisis center. 
Complainant does not know if wants to file charges at this time. On this date, I met with Ms. Mosley at the sheriff's office. Ms. Mosley advised me that on this date, at approximately 3.30 a.m., she was at her ex-husband's, Leonard Mosley's, residence, when he, Mr. Mosley, tried to have sex with her, but she refused. Miss Mosley advised me that he then got up out of bed and went to a drawer and pulled out his 45 auto pistol and told her that since she would not have sex with him, she would not have sex with anyone and that he was going to kill her. Miss Mosley stated that she went up to him and grabbed his hand and begged him not to do this and pleaded with him to put the gun down. Miss Mosley stated that she tried everything even telling him that she would stay and even have sex with him, trying to get him to put down the gun and get his mind off of killing her. Miss Mosley stated that he then handed her the gun and told her that he was going to hit her and keep hitting her until she had shot him. Miss Mosley stated that she told him she wouldn't do that and started to try to have sex with him to get his mind off of the gun and that she asked him to take the clip out of the gun, which he did, and she put the gun back in the drawer and she then had sex with him. Miss Mosley stated that he then calmed down and she was able to leave. Miss Mosley stated that she was afraid of him and that she wanted to get a protective order and that she did have a safe place to go and was even going to move away from Smith County. Miss Mosley stated that she did not know if she wanted to file charges at this time because she was so afraid that he would kill her. I explained to her about contacting the East Texas Crisis Center to file for a protective order and for a safe place to stay if she did not have one. I also explained to her that she had five working days to make up her mind if she wished the charges to be filed. Aside from the chilling details of this incident, the even more sickening part is that charges never were filed. Leonard Mosley was never questioned or arrested. The end of the report states that after the five days were up, a deputy tried to reach out to Joanne. She didn't answer the phone, so they closed the case. This was unbelievable to me. So I reached out to a police officer friend of mine and asked him how this should have been handled. He told me that the crimes that were alleged here were felonies, and felonies are crimes against the state. You do not need a person to, quote, press charges in order to arrest somebody for a felony. We're dealing with sexual assault, imprisonment, assault with a deadly weapon. There's a list of several felonies that were alleged here. When I asked my officer friend how this should have been handled, he said that charges should have immediately been filed with the prosecutor and the prosecutor would make the determination of what to do next. And he said in a situation like this, where we have such extreme violence and a gun, and the fact that the victim is afraid for their lives, he believes that his prosecutor would have immediately issued an arrest warrant and went and brought Mr. Mosley in for questioning at least. The fact that this awful assault was dropped and no charges were ever filed is devastating. And who was the detective that investigated the case? The detective that gave a five-day time limit to a woman who was afraid for her life? That detective was none other than Dale Huckel. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Michael Bussing. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Today's opening music was To the Top by Score Squad. All other music was created by Shane Yoder. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Mueller, and Sarah Hoyt for transcribing all of the episodes and sending them off to Ed and Kenny every week. And as always, thank all of you for all of your support and engagement. 
Don't forget that on Tuesday night from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking calls for the Friday follow-up episode. Send in all your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. If you have a question for this week's episode, add hashtag episode 246. You can do the same thing on Facebook and on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.